Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I'm joined by a Canadian. No, not Ryan Reynolds. Everybody's disappointed now. It's Kevin Casey. <laughs> Certainly by the look of that, they know it's not Ron Reynolds. It's more like Malk. If Ryan Reynolds was on my podcast, my wife and my daughter and 50,000 other friends would be in my studio right now watching it. So Peter's totally alone. <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, Ryan, the, t- the soccer team he bought, they're playing in this 8v8 soccer tournament in North Carolina in June. Wow. My son and my son-in-law both got on teams and they're playing in the same tournament. Whatever it takes for you, Pete, to meet Ryan Reynolds, you are so sly to move, make all those chess pieces just to get to meet your Canadian idol. My kids have no idea that I've manipulated them into this very situation. <laughs> of, course, of course so. 20 years of soccer training for this moment, Kevin. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, it, it, is, uh, it is so good to have you on the show. We've We've connected over LinkedIn. We've given each other a lot of shit in our posts, and um, I appreciate all your content. And we're going to talk about this a little later on, but you've got a book coming out. Please don't ask for specific dates. It will be sometime in November. I'm just not sure which year yet. It should be this year. In all honesty, I need to get this done or I'm going to be divorced. Yeah. It's no fun writing a book, is it? Very lonely. Shockingly lonely. Yeah. book was... I underestimated it for sure. I remember beginning of COVID, you know, you could have binge watched Netflix like everyone else. And I started that and I said, well, maybe I'll learn guitar. And I started playing guitar and then I got to the F chord and I said, this isn't going well. So maybe I'll write a book just to kind of, and then I just started and that was two and a half years ago. And here I am, like many things I've learned by making mistakes about how easy I thought writing a book was. It's been tough. You just started circulating possible titles and subtitles, right? So you've settled on the title. It's called Unselling, correct? That part's been clear from day one. Okay, I was going to ask that. So did you have, was that already in your head? Because that's your mantra, that's your brand. And that was there right away. Yes, that was there from day one. It's the other 225 pages that have given me the problem. Unselling was always there for me. And I remember it was this George Costanza. Maybe I got something for short guys like me with receding hairlines. Oh, that's good. I know the baseball hat works. Well, you got the chisel chin, so no one sees the hairline. George Costanza did this episode where, you know, he's always down on himself and he walks in and, and Jerry and Elaine are there. And he goes, everything I've ever done is wrong. Like, you know, here I am. I'm 42 years old. I'm living with my mother. I'm unemployed. I'm single. I'm every girl's disaster if Tinder existed. And Jerry said, if everything you've always done is wrong, then the opposite has to be right. So George decides to order the opposite of what he normally orders for lunch every day. And then Elaine says, George, this girl over at the bar just looked over here. And George goes, it can't be at me. And Jerry said, just do the opposite of what you'd always do. And George gets up, you know, kind of pulls his cardigans together and his khakis, 
and he walks over and he's nervous and he looks at her and said, uh, I just saw you were looking over at our table. He goes, yeah, you ordered the same thing I did for lunch. And he said, hi, my name is George. I live with my mother. I'm unemployed. And there was this pause where millions of people were like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? And she goes, hi, my name is Victoria. And it worked. And George just did the opposite. For the whole episode. It was cl- it's a classic. It's a great one. And I think for me, I mean, I'm 55 now. Even though I know I look in my 30s, it's about 55. Where it's remarkable. It's that the transcript catches that. I think for so many years, I sold the wrong way and I didn't know it. And when the pressure came off and I just did the opposite, it all started to kind of work. And that's why On Selling was the name that came to me because it was just a complete flip for me. So I have to, this is going to be a, a safety tip for all of our listeners, because if you've ever seen the TV commercial with Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, and Colin Marcara, where he says forgiveness, and McIlroy kept saying forgiveness, forgiveness. You're saying unselling, but it sounds like unselling. So this is the Canadian pronunciation. Yeah. Good point. So we have to spell it. Unselling is U-N-S-E-L-L-I-N-G. So we'll make a note of that in the notes. God, maybe I need to pick another title or it's only going to be a, it's only going to do well in Canada. Knows what no, it's-, it's going to do great in Canada. People in Canada know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> it's true, eh? And I'm, <laughs> and I'm from Wisconsin. So we were talking about this before. And because when I talked to my family, I've lived outside of Wisconsin long enough. None of my kids sound like they're from Wisconsin. But every once in a while when I'm with my family, it, you know, I'll see boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What? All right, Kevin. So you tell us what your this this book and this authoring mission of yours. It's not your day job. So Gosh, what do you no. what do you do to put my day job? Yeah, what do you do to put food on the table, and how do you apply this unselling practice in that daily life? You know, I started uh, like everyone else, but my day to day job is is I'm um, um, an owner of a commercial insurance brokerage here in Newfoundland and Labrador, which is the far east of Canada. For so those U.S. people, Vancouver's on one side, Toronto's in the middle. Put your finger and go east, and you'll see this little island called Newfoundland and Labrador, and that's where I am. So my day job is uh, I run a brokerage. We've got about 70 people. We do about 90 million in premium. I've lived my whole life here. Uh, so I've never moved away. Before that, I was actually an owner of an ad agency. So like no one leaves a creative ad agency and goes into the insurance business. It's almost unprecedented. And the book is really from my time as an entrepreneur since 2000 and 2001, when I got my walking papers from the largest brewery in Canada. And sometimes like everything, you know, adversity actually creates those moments. For a lot of time when I sold, I sold very desperate. And if my mother or father were flying the wall, they wouldn't have been very proud of the way I was selling, even though I was trying to grow this agency and we were struggling through it and we got there. And even though I was relatively successful, I wasn't very proud of the way it was happening. And when I joined the brokerage as an owner in 2016, some of the pressure left me. And I didn't have that pressure of payroll and uh, just trying to change an industry that was being bombarded at that point uh, in terms of its business model. 
And I just kind of took the gas off a little bit. And I started to say, how could I approach this more of a conversation than a pitch? And I experimented. I didn't even know what it was at that point, Pete. Uh, It wasn't like I was decodifying this. I just started slowly trying some different things. And the one thing I noticed is, one, I was working way less. I seemed to be getting to the truth faster because people more more comfortable. And the other thing is I like the person staring back at the mirror every morning a whole lot more than the other person. And I would think in the, you know, if you saw me in 2002, I was much more from the Grant Cardone world of selling. And I thought that's what salespeople were because Hollywood dramatized it that way. And we all watched the movies and we all saw the Wolf of Wall Street and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and we didn't know any better. And no one ever really taught me to sell. But here I am with a year severance starting a business. And honestly, anyone that made eye contact me was a prospect. Uh, So I kind of fell into the hard sell. And it wasn't until I started to think about the calm sell that things started to work with me. And I think COVID was the time that said, maybe I need to try to codify this a little bit for my team at Calibro, which is the brokerage I'm an owner at. And I started to try it out with my team. And one thing I noticed is the people that were hugely anxious about selling and were much more order takers than salespeople, they actually started to open up and feel better about what they were doing. And they didn't feel like they needed to pretend to be somebody else. And I think in many ways, uh, I only learned to be myself, I think, at probably 45 or 47. And that's a bit sad. As you know, I've got a daughter that's 20 and I know you've got a, you know, a a child the same age is you don't want them to find themselves at 45, but I found myself late. This is the book for me when I was 31. And uh, maybe there's enough of those people out there that need a book like that, uh, that I didn't have. Well, by the way, I think everyone should, and I hope they find themselves And and I don't know that you can predict at what age that happens, but at least you did. Right. So now you're you're going into the later years of your life, your career, your, your daughter's now an adult. You're, you're going to see her go through all the same, right, same challenges. But a lot of people don't find themselves, right? They, they're on their deathbed and they go, shit, that kind of sucked, <laughs> right? So I, I also believe that uh, I think God uh, has you find yourself when you're ready to find yourself too. I spent a lot of years, and I think I see other people in this trap too. I think I wanted to be the person that other people wanted me to be. So, you know, the agency that we created in a basement um, was called the Idea Factory. We did very well out of the gate because one thing, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. And I think that actually helped us because we were completely different than the big agencies. But we got some early success. We got some early accolades. And I think I started to believe my own headlines and I was breathing my own fumes And I think that success, while it was really good for me, I actually think it had some harmful side effects. I think it really took me till 47, 45, 47, before I started to realize I don't want to be pretend to be someone else anymore. And if I can just stop selling and start sifting, and there's only three letters in that difference, right? The I and the F and the T. If I can start sifting and really understand that 70% of the time people aren't the right fit for me. Why don't I get to the truth faster? And 
I always thought no's were a bad thing. And I always took no's as a negative. And now I even within our own team, we learn to celebrate the no's because that's mean you ask the uncomfortable questions and you trusted your instincts early. And uh, it takes confidence to ask uncomfortable questions. Um, but people want to hear it. And I think our society is more skeptical than ever. And I think people can tell what's real and what's artificial. I think that people got a nose for it. Well, I think there's, there's a, also a secret gem to what you're doing. If you ask the right questions of a potential client up front and they still say no, there's a couple of things that are going to happen if you've done it correctly. Number one, there just may not be a need at that particular time, right? So what? Just, there's just not a need then. But number two, they're going to respect you for the questions you asked. And number three, they'll be a customer at some point. And people forget this. They forget the fact that you need customers next year, the year after that, the year after that. And LinkedIn will allow you, and I think your brand that you're building, that's the best way to stay top of mind with these potential clients, right? They said no, but they still see you out there. They see your content. They appreciated the way you did business. And when they're ready to buy whatever that product or service is, they're going to go, I remember that engagement with this particular firm or Kevin or whoever it is in your team. And I think people forget that. Cold calling, cold emailing. If you get a 1% conversion rate to a meeting through a cold call and a cold meal, the other 999 of those people don't ever want to hear from you again. They've blocked you. They don't care about you because it wasn't personal. And I, I think that people will respond to unselling. And the cool thing is you've built this brand that's somewhat detached from your day job. Completely. I mean, my, my business partners have been so supportive because one, they see me doing this every day. So it's true. I'm not kind of writing a book from, you know, Cape Cod looking over the ocean about how I used to sell. I mean, this is actually how I try to sell today. And there's some people on my team that I can't convert. And the other thing I've realized is I can't change everyone. So if someone's open to it, I think it's interesting. I mean, the strange thing with all this, Pete, which is, I think the problem with the book for me was, it was a little bit of a COVID thing of filling time when it was a way to calm me. And it was because the guitar thing was a horrible experiment. <laughs> but I remember I was on a charity board here for the business and arts coming together. And it's called Business and Arts in L. And we always bring in the same speakers because Newfoundland's a population of a half million people. And I'm sick of hearing the same speakers. So I'm at this board meeting and the chair says, you know, we need to bring in a speaker. Let's bring in X. And I'm like, I have heard this person speak 11 times. They must be sick of getting asked. And, you know, the chair said, well, why don't, who do you think we should bring in? I said, well, we need someone that's going to connect business and arts and has the credibility like Seth Goble. And I remember everyone laughed at me at that table. And spite is an incredible sure. motivator for me. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because I'm 5'8 and I've always had to kind of be the grinder in the corner versus a guy with finesse. But when they laughed at me about Seth Goble, I actually went home and spent four hours on the most thoughtful, cold email. I don't know Seth Godin. I've read at least 12 of these 19 books. 
And I sent him a cold email. I found his email through some kind of form in the dark net somewhere. Sure. And I sent him probably the best email I've ever written in my life. And there was a lot in there that showed I was an insider and I read his stuff. So there was a lot of on selling in there. And in 43 minutes, he emailed me back. Wow. And Seth Golden waived his fee. He basically said, you cannot afford my speaking fee. I'll speak for 50 minutes. It's not going to be a keynote. It's going to be an interview for 30 minutes with me and you. Wow. Well, I first got my IT guy to make sure it wasn't a prank that the IT people or the board was playing on me. So it was real. It was actually Seth Godin. And two, then I said, oh, my God, I got to interview Seth Godin. And then the imposter syndrome checks in. And But I had great uh, pride in going to the board and saying, I know you guys kind of laughed at the Seth Godin thing, but yeah, we've got him on April 18th. So uh, we're going to do a live via satellite from New York. Fantastic. And I think they thought it was a prank. And I gladly had copies to verify it of every line of the email to prove it was right. And it was one of the great experiences. And Seth Godin doesn't fully know this. And I've stayed in touch with him a little bit, but I also don't want to be a nuisance. Sure. I think he helped me with the book because... He gave me one little piece of advice and he asked me, what problem am I trying to solve and who's my audience? And I told him my audience was going to be people in the insurance world who need to learn to sell better. And he said, okay, so you want to spend the rest of your life after that with insurance people? And I went, oh God, no. He said, who are you going to get energy from? And I said, I think it's from small business people that have something special, but they are riddled with so much anxiety that they're hiding in the corner and they just can't get out there to sell. He said, that's who you need to help. And that was the moment that half the book was written and I totally changed it. It's brilliant advice. It's brilliant advice. In fact, one of the reasons your, your stuff speaks to me is that um, people think I'm a natural salesperson. A couple of friends of mine, you know, are, are big into all the personality profiles and tools. So they've asked me to take a couple of these profiles recently and were very curious. They wanted to go through it with me and they got on the call to go through the results. Like, dude, you're not at all what I expected. You're more analytical expert, bottom left quadrant than upper right quadrant. Mm, interesting. And I said, well, I am an engineer. I'm still an engineer. I'm a, I'm a salesperson trapped in an engineer's body. So I love people, but I love relationships. I don't like the superficial sales situation. I said, go deeper. I said, I'll give you a very crisp example that'll explain exactly who I am. And by the way, I've been a CEO for 15, 20 years. So I have to be the face guy. I have to be the fundraiser, the speaker, the number one salesperson. I have to do all those things. It's my job. Right. But if I'm at a conference or an event, and if you said, Pete, I'm going to hand you a piece of paper as you walk up on stage in front of 2000 people with one word on it, you have to give a talk for one hour on that word. And you can't know what the word is until you walk up. I'm like, bring it on. I'll do that all day. Love it. Public speaking, I enjoy. Right. Selling, I do not. So I said, when the conference is over and we have to go to the hotel lobby and mingle with all the people at the conference, the vendors, the customers, I just want to go up in my room and go to bed. I despise that fake level of mingling and selling. So I've had to really discover that about myself and find out, like you said, what gives me energy, what drains energy for me. 100%. You know, one of the things I've thought very carefully about since my discussions with Seth and people like you on LinkedIn 
who've been nice enough to give me some advice, other people who've struggled to write books, is I know the person I'm writing for is very specific and you're not going to find a chapter on cold calling. You just won't. Have I cold called? I absolutely have. But here's the one thing I know with someone who's anxious about selling. Even if I spent an hour with them and they believed it was only about starting a conversation and being detached, right? it's just not going to work. As soon as I turn my back, they're not going to do it. So what I've really worked hard on on this, and this is a real Dan Kennedy uh, term, is how do you position yourself to be the invited guest versus the nasty pest? Yeah. And I don't need to teach them a thousand prospecting plays. I don't want them to be one call closers. They don't even want to be great salespeople. They want to be salespeople that they can look at their kids and say, this is what I did today. So that's why even the prospecting parts of my book is going to be very actionable and it's not going to get into things they're never going to do. Because I, I can tell you, I've went to 3,000 networking events. I've survived. I haven't died. Yeah. I've hated 99% of it. it. Rip and grin events are the most energy-sucking thing for me in the world. Because everyone's as uncomfortable. It's just no one admits that it, it doesn't work. Yeah. It just doesn't yeah. Work. And there are huge cold call, cold email advocates out there, right? They just, they preach it. It's what they do. Do a thousand calls. Do a thousand emails. It's how it works. Well, at some point, you know, an apple's going to fall off the tree in front of you. It's just, it's just going to. But you and I were talking about this before we hit record. And if you make a thousand cold calls or send a thousand cold emails and five or 10 people say, I'll take a meeting with you, you've pissed off the other 990 of them. They just don't want to hear from you again. They block you. They have a bad taste in their mouth. But if you take a smaller, more personal approach to being invited right. in, which is a longer term play. Right then even the people that say, hey, Kevin, you know what? Now's not a good time. Still remember you positively. Here's the thing. If my, the person I really want to help, and I don't need this book to put food on the table, right. thank God. I mean, that's real pressure. But if the person I really want to help is the small entrepreneur that I was in 2001, we don't have time to do those amount of calls. Like we have to make everything count. So I've always said I would rather four quarters than a hundred pennies. And I respect, I've become friends with Benjamin Dennehy. He's incredible at cold calling. I just don't want to do that. It's like, it's, it's not what the person I could probably do it. And I have done it. I've never felt great about it, but I'm not going to cover that. And if someone wants to say, I want a cold call, I'm going to send you to 10 yeah. people who are way better than yeah. me at that. If you're feeling anxious and you want to find a way to sell without pretending to be somebody else, I can tell you who the somebody else is because I was that person. And I can tell you who the person is now. And I truly believe you can work way less and sell more, but you can still be proud of the way you've done it. Yeah, I think that's so important. Even I've even, you know, you mentioned you're 55, so am I. I've even adjusted my go to market strategy for my small practice. And I actually enjoy the outbound aspect of it. I never did before. Right. I never, ever did. And partly because I'm not afraid for people to say no to me. Not at all. A matter of fact, I get great reward in knowing that I don't need that sale and pointing people in the right direction. And oddly, when you try to do that, the opposite happens. 
suddenly they pull themselves back. So the whole pushing and pulling, I would say, you know, curiosity pulls and persuasion pushes. I can tell you, I am big on curiosity and provocation. And if they don't light up and I don't see a light up in their tone, I let them off the hook fast because it's, I'm not for everyone and insurance, which people would see as the most boring subject in the world. My biggest fear when I made this move was I was going to be bored. It wasn't about money. I knew I was going to be paid well. It was, is it going to give me enough energy? And honestly, we are protecting people's businesses. I can make that pretty sexy. I reached out. I did a cold outbound, but it was, and we'll talk offline about how I do this, right? I usually get out of all the ones I send out, I'll get several back. They'll say, dude, we don't have a need right now, but I took what you just did here. And I walked down to my VP of sales and market office and said, this is the most incredible inbound I've ever received. Why are we not doing this? And, and some of my potential recruiting customers become sales training clients of mine. So I actually teach them how to do this. And I had a call with a potential customer, CEO of a, of a, a small company, venture backed, COVID kicked them in the teeth. They're struggling, but they they can see their way around it, but they got to raise some more. It's, it's, she's in it, right? She's in the thick of it. I lived it. She flipped the call on me, Kevin. She goes, I've been looking forward to this call because I'd like to, I've looked at your background, your stuff. I want to learn from you. She goes, as a CEO of a store, what do I do? Where do I go right now? So we talked, we talked for 30 minutes about her business. Amazing. And she said, can we schedule a call next week and do this again? I said, absolutely. And she goes, what can I do for you? I said, here's the deal. Karma's funny. I said, at some point you might need me and you might not, but I'll enjoy this conversation. I'll learn from it. You might learn. So down the road, you know, you might say, I know a guy, but don't worry about it right now. Let's just continue the discussion. She's like, really? Like, yeah, just, let's just continue to talk. You're playing the long game, but it's also true. It's genuine. And you're like me. I am such a curious guy. Yes. I can't help. So when you reached out to me, I'm not a professional podcast guest. I've never asked anyone to be a guest on it. Sure. I know when you asked me, I said, it was nice of you to ask. You said, well, I asked you a year ago and you didn't get back to me. And I, we scrolled back. So uh, I think people can smell what's real and fake. The other thing I think is, um, and I'm testing this now, is the average person and I'm going to say, Pete, you're getting 123 emails a day. We're going to Slack. We're going to email. We're on text. There's so many ways. I'm actually even experimenting with going back to the direct response days. And I'm studying uh, people like Dan Kennedy. And um, when I think of Gene Schwartz and some of these people from the old days, and I've actually used snail mail again, looking like a courier and people getting that Amazon effect when they get a package now. And you wrote about this on a handwritten note. I used to get 20 handwritten notes a year. Yeah, I might get one a year. And I remember exactly who it's from. And I feel so different about that person because that takes effort. Yes. And I am okay with using old time handwritten notes and snail mail and lumpy mail to actually show people he's put some effort into this. I don't know if he's for real, but 
God, I need, my brain is itching and I, I got to understand what he's talking about here. How many salespeople do you have, Kevin? 19. So you and your team realize that in, in, especially in commercial insurance, this is not a one to many approach. This is a one to few. You all know the companies that you should be doing business with. They're in your communities. And like you said, you're, you're de-risking their business. It's a value. They have to have this. It's important. And how they do it's really important. Not, a lot of people don't know how to do it for their type of business, the type of coverage they need. So cold calling and cold emailing, which has created the HubSpots and the outreaches and these cadence tools and dollars, I, that's a marketing yes. activity to me. I just purely believe that's a, that's a direct marketing activity. I have a list. I don't know you. I'm spraying and praying. When you do what you, your folks are doing, you're, you're doing deep research on your customer. You're understanding where they are, where they live, what they do, and your outreach has a lot more thought to it. The handwritten note, the, the, the post I made was such a, and you're right, I, I think I've received three in the past two years. And the name of this gentleman's company, I didn't put it in the post because I, I didn't ask his permission to, to share the note, is Mission Matters. And they support nonprofits back off. They help nonprofits scale and grow. So he's a mission-driven person. Right. Very thoughtful. And we've now referred each other in and out of three or four customers. And these are meaningful relationships just because we can trust each other. It's funny. My, uh, my team three years ago, we do these things called success trackers. And some of the things, and I don't call it a scorecard because no adult wants to be on a mm-hmm. scorecard from a sales guy or a sales yep. leader. But there is some non-selling things that we put on their success trackers and we built them together. And I remember when I first had handwritten notes or something proactive, that means they didn't call us. We actually go out. And I essentially believe if you drop off coffee for the staff in the insurance business where we're office dwellers, that's like a shock and awe. It just doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they fought me on this first. People said, you know, this is embarrassing. I got to deliver coffee or I got, I said, guys, you don't have to deliver coffee. Maybe you send over a book and you're right on the inside of the book is I got halfway through this and I thought of you and I thought you would love it. Here's a copy. That's it. At first they were very skeptical of this because it was very on broker, like very on insurance, like, and now I don't even need to check their success trackers. They have written broker record letters. They have one business. There's this uh, salmon fishing is big yeah. in our part of the world. So people, spend a lot of money to come from the United States to Canada and certain parts of Newfoundland and Labrador to fish for salmon. It's, it's a big ticket item. And um, some of our clients love salmon fishing. And one of our sales reps found a map of all the salmon fishing rivers in Newfoundland and Labrador and notes from over the years about what were the best parts. And he sent that to prospects that he heard were big Salmon fishermen. He didn't ask to quote their business. He just said, you know, Pete told me you love this. I've given a copy to him. I just want to pass one on to you. Nothing else. And it's turned into business. He didn't even have to have a call to action. It's astonishing. I I have, uh, I don't have it up here with me, but I have a Crucible Partners Yeti coffee mugs. And I intentionally got Yeti like coffee mugs. I didn't get the knockoff brand. I bought Yetis. And I have a stack of them in my closet. And every once in a while, if I have a customer who I know has said, boy, I, I could probably use your help, but not right now. You know, at the holidays, I'll send them one of those mugs with a handwritten note inside of it. And it says, hey, Kevin, 
tomorrow morning, I want you to get up, pour yourself a nice hot cup, you know, cup of coffee or tea. And I want you to sit down and realize when the shit hits the fan, I can call Pete and he'll be there. That's it. 100%. And it's the little things. I had a client, I was in Germany and I was doing business with Siemens. And the Germans are so proper. I love doing business in Germany because if there's something bad, you talk about it, you fix it and you move on. You don't lament it, you just move on. And it's just very, and they're very, they typically unemotional, just get through it. But they like to have a beer and they're fun just, and they think Americans are hilarious. So this guy made an offhand comment that he likes to cycle, likes to bike. My next trip back to Berlin, I brought him one of my company's cycling shirts. And, you know, we had a bunch of triathletes and competitive cyclists. I brought him one of our shirts and I gave it to him in the meeting. He literally stopped the meeting and said, no one has ever done anything like this for me. I have a, like a 50K ride this weekend. I will wear this. I am so grateful. And he was visibly moved. I know. And it's shocking how, how we forget that the person on the other side of us, Kevin, is a human. They're feeling just like us. And when someone remembers, you know, we had a great conversation off camera about our kids. And I remember a couple of things now. And if I actually take the effort and it takes effort, it's a pain in the ass to do sometimes. But if I take something from that moment and send it to you with no benefit to me, it's going to forever change the way you feel oh, about Kevin Casey. Yeah. And to me, we are so bombarded now with more technical shortcuts. The advantage of the person that is anxious about selling is it's okay. You don't need the dialer. You don't need to do the thousand calls. You don't need to template that cold email. Actually do the opposite. Be a Costanza. Take a Costanza moment and let's do the opposite. So my book is going to be, I think some of the, I would never get invited to these clubs anyways, but some of the <laughs> Some of the people who put out a sales book every year, which I don't know how they do it, uh, ghostwriters maybe, it's yeah. just incredible. They won't like some of the stuff in there, but I am writing this for a very specific yeah. person. And honestly, if Pete, you buy it and my mother buys it and her bridge club buy it out of pity, yeah. I'm okay. I am not going to be uh, worrying about craft dinner for dinner for the kids. It'll be fine, but I need to get the book out of my head. and. I need to help the person that I was in 2012 when, you know, I did have a lot of Grant Cardone in me and nothing wrong. Grant Cardone is more successful than I'll ever be. I don't have a private plane. I'm really happy if I get an emergency exit row. That's a win to me. Even with your height, it's that important, huh? It is leg room. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, okay, it's big gotcha. legs, right? My quads are <laughs> Sorry, oversized. I couldn't leave that one alone. <laughs> <laughs> I know you could. Uh, but it's important to... Uh, to me, that, that you can still feel proud of the way you sell. You said something earlier uh, about, and, and I love how Seth asked you to really understand who you're writing the book for, right? And, and you said there's this, and it could be a salesperson, an entrepreneur, a small business owner who, and when you're a small business owner, which you, which you became and had to figure out, you are the number one salesperson. Yeah. When you start a business, you are the chief. No one delegated. There's no you're the chief everything. But I love how you described them sitting with several things, imposter syndrome, anxiety, nervousness. I have an idea. I believe what I'm doing, but the thought of calling someone and asking them for their business just so foreign to me. Now, sure, the grants are out. The Grant Cardones are out there. There's all sorts of people out there with tremendous sales success. My brother's one of them, probably the best salesperson I've ever seen in my life, but he's, he's not an unseller. He's a seller. 
he builds playbooks and he sticks to them and he knows the numbers and it just works. And he's a cold caller, cold. He just, he's a machine. Yeah. You can't argue with it, but you've built a business doing this. So there's proof, right? This does work. There's no one simple way to solve all these problems. I had become very good friends with, you know, Justin Michael, who is all about tech stacks. I mean, he calls himself the sales board. That's his game. And I respect them that everyone's got a different game and we all have different talents. And my way of doing it isn't better than Justin's. And It's got to be what fits you and makes you feel like you can uh, be proud of yourself, be proud to tell what you're doing for a living. And actually, uh, I always use the fly in the wall thing for me because my dad was, uh, and I lost my dad in 2019, he was much more of a factory worker and he worked hard every single day of his life, but it was 8.30 to 4.30, come home, have supper, read the paper, yeah. go to bed. He never took a chance yeah. in his whole yeah. life, ever. And my mother raised all of us. And when we were 13, she came home and said, I won't be cooking supper and doing the dishes and clean your clothes anymore. I'm getting into real estate. And I was 13 and we all thought mom was having some kind of midlife crisis. She was 42. And she went on to be one of the top real estate agents in my province. And I had a dad that was a factory worker. I had my mom that was an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was. And I think what I, I felt with when I saw my mom had the courage to do that with four kids, and she was a woman in 1978 that decided to go out on her own and do this. And she was a secretary before it. I think it changed me. And that's, I love my dad for so many reasons, but I saw mom doing that. And I said, I don't want to be stuck yeah. living like dad did. And um, that's kind of what motivated me. You know, it's uh, so it's a great story. And I think if you had a chance to talk to your dad now, and by the way, I'm sorry, he passed away in, in 2019. My wife has lost both parents and three siblings in the last few years. And her mom was 91 mm. in 2019 when she passed. We're grateful she passed before COVID because that would have been, it would have been gut-wrenching to watch them have to go through that. Yeah. But, you know, I think about my parents and my parents are completely the opposite people of each other. My dad is the, he's EF Hutton. He's quiet. He's an engineer. says very few things. I've never met anyone who doesn't like my dad. I've never heard him say an unkind word about anybody else. And this doesn't mean he's a pushover. He is a... He was a hard working, there's a line in the sand, you don't cross it kind of guy, but he could do it by example. My mom is, there's always talking, there's always emotion going on. They both have the biggest hearts in the world. But my dad, he would always support and encourage anything we wanted to do. He, he, I think he looked at his role and maybe your dad felt the same way. My dad said, I'm sticking to this plan because my job is to make sure that there's stability. There's food on the table. Yeah. And I don't, and he's not, he wasn't like your dad. He's not a risk taker. I don't think he was worried that, but I don't think he even thought about it. He turned down promotions and jobs because he thought I'd have to be gone. I'd be working, you know, yeah. I mean, this is my job. Yeah. And I look back and I'm so grateful for those lessons. And, and, and we're all wired. Like you always, I was kind of wired. I moved away when I graduated. I'm like, I'm gone. Right. And I want to go back to something else you said that I think is so important for people as they as they come to the end of this podcast. The tech stack folks, the the folks that put out these machines and do the thousand calls and thousand emails. 
they definitely produce a result, right? They're very good at what they do and they're focused on the outcome. They are focused on the outcome. My brother focused on the outcome and dang gone, and he's been successful. Can't argue with it. It's clinical. I don't have that gear. And, I, and my wife sometimes looks at me and goes, I, you would be okay if you had a little more of that gear. I'd be okay. Like, we, you know, we'd be okay to make some money, honey. You're an entrepreneur. I get it. So we tease about it. But the reason we resonated when we first started to connect and talk is because I like the outcome, but I like the journey just as much. So when I mentioned this woman before who, who's in the thick of it as an entrepreneur, I'm pulling for her. I told her, I, said, I am cheering for you because I love your story and I want to see you be successful. And the fact that she's asking and she's curious and wants help, I want to build a relationship with her and her team and her business and, and help them be successful. I, whether I ever make a dime off of it, I want to see her succeed. And maybe you can't do that if you're focused on the outcome. I don't know. You can't. Pete, I'm so glad you brought that up because it was all outcome driven yeah. for me for so many years. And by the way, you can be very successful doing it. I got relatively successful being obsessed with the outcome. But when I finally got as attached to the process, yes, and I stuck to it almost obsessively, the out the right outcome happened. And I actually didn't burn the one thing that I'm getting less of as I get older, which is time. Yeah. And you know, a friend said to me this Christmas past, I was going to make a big decision on something. He said, well, listen, man, you got 20 Christmases left. And it just hit me because I don't know where from 30 to 55 happened. But when I started to think of 20 Christmases, best case, I started to say, how do I want to spend my time? And I certainly don't want to spend my time doing 99 calls that aren't going to work. I don't want to spend my time waterboarding emails. And I don't want to spend my time saying Kevin Casey's a nuisance. And I have been able to sell way more and grow more by actually doing less by design and feeling really good about it. And it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea because people like hacks and shortcuts. And some of the methods I'm going to talk about require some patience. And I'm not a patient person, but if you think just because you're calling someone up, they're going to buy you're going to hate sales because most of the time it is about nurturing and staying top of mind in their mental shortlist. And that's when I got things right. And that's when I felt better about myself. And I don't need to sell these books uh, to make money, but I feel really good when someone reaches out and just says, that helped me because I have nothing to sell. I have nothing to sell if anyone comes to me now. Are you and Dale Dupree connected? I've watched, by the way, uh, Dale is incredible story. I've watched him on your podcast. Uh, I've read his story. I've used the fake yeah. brick. Yeah. Uh, I like him, man. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, had all the vices all around him all the time, right? And has found the light and has followed it and created a community. Yeah. And, you know, now I even heard it on your podcast, he's building a house, but he says it's going to be the smallest house you've ever seen. So he must be building a tiny home, but he's found himself. And it took me till I was 47. Yeah. And I, again, wasn't the rock star he was, but we just got to find ourselves and be secure in who we are. I'm going to connect the two of you because uh, his podcast, I look back, in my opinion, it's the best podcast we've ever done. 
99% of it is because Dale was an incredible guest. Just really good yeah. guest. My production team, our editing team, just they crushed that one. It just when you listen to it, you're like, this is how a podcast is supposed to be. It was so well, so well done. And he's he's articulate, deep, emotional. And Dale's one of those people like you that I reached out to who we connected at a deeper level. I love his content. He's an unseller. You've actually labeled it. He's a rebel. So he called it a rebellion, which is exactly what it is. The two of you uh, will, will hit it off extremely well. Maybe I should have called it that because I could pronounce <laughs> that properly. Well, I don't know how you would call it. How do you pronounce rebellion in Canadian? Is it just- Rebellion. Yeah, it's, it's actually not bad. It's not bad. As I take notes here on the right-hand side of the screen, I'm always looking for something that'll jump out to me as a title for this episode. And I could just easily just go with unselling. That was too easy. Yeah. The title of this episode is going to be 20 Christmases Left. Oh, yeah. And, and sometimes it's right at the end, but to me, that is money. And by the way, I'd never thought of it that way. It scares the shit out of me now all of a sudden, right? I mean, I'm a, I became a, we became a grandfather this year. I'm, Powerful thing, right? Because we've been through a lot of Christmases, but yeah. And then you know, the same. My same friend sent me a text at five minutes to midnight and said, "Oh, by the way, twenty New Year's Eves." Yeah. So it makes you appreciate things, but uh, I don't want to burn sales calories and time when I could be spending time with the people I want to spend time with. I'm on LinkedIn all day, every day, and and I as soon as I'm as soon as I retire, you'll never hear from me again. I'll be gone, but. If I'm going to be here, I might as well make meaningful relationships. And in, in it, it's allowed me to do that. 100%. Well, I think we found one here, man. I feel like I found one with you. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm so glad you're on the, the show. And, and um, this will probably come out in about six or seven weeks. And hopefully we can, we can make a big deal about it, that the book's coming out and you'll be able to have a date. Let's do that. I need some more pressure from people like you who actually make me feel good about doing this because I've had some moments where. And I think we've all felt like this. Do I even have a right to write this book? You know, I'm from a small place in Canada. But I also said, you know, I've also built a $6 million agency in a very small place. I wasn't in right. Manhattan. I was in a little place in Canada and did it. And uh, I wish dad was around to see it because right up until the end, he was always worried. Are you, are you doing okay? And I was like, dad, I'm doing fine. But you got to remember, this is a guy who worked in building supplies. And when he first came to the idea factory, he saw a pool table and he saw my accountant wore a baseball hat and sneakers. He went home to my mom and said, I think Kevin's selling drugs. Yeah. He's losing it. Because he was in a box. So he always worried about me actually, even though he didn't need to, because I, I did make changes a lot. And I, I did leave the agency world and went to the insurance world where I never read a policy yeah. in my life. And my dad said, how can you do that? You don't know anything about insurance. I said, I know that. That's what makes it so uncomfortably yeah. great. Getting, up, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And you know, my dad, the same thing. He was, he was an engineer, right? So he could touch and feel everything he worked on. And there were people and parts and inventory. And this virtual stuff is, and now he's fascinated by it. Like when we see each other, he wants to know more and he's interested and he loves it, which is great. So well, Kevin, I, uh, it's been a joy and you're even better in person than your content is in your comments. And you're, this book is going to be successful. There are people waiting for it. Is that because I look like Ron Reynolds a little bit now that you've spent an hour with me? Yeah, Ron Reynolds, the plumber in Utah. <laughs> but Ryan Reynolds, the actor, not so much. Oh, I thought we were talking about Ron Reynolds. He is yeah. a plumber. He's Ron, Ron Reynolds, he's a great plumber, by the way. 
if you're in Salt Lake City, Ron's your guy. But Ryan Reynolds, the actress or the actor, I, I don't think I'm, I don't see it, but maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I need maybe um less carbs. <laughs> Kevin, it's been a pleasure, buddy. Listen, you too, Pete. I uh, hope we see each other in the real world. You're, you're good. We'll do this again. Thanks, man. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. 